Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the March 2023 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook and discussion of an interview between Stalin and Roy Howard from 1936. After the audiobook, we will also have a discussion about a teachable moment that came up on social media recently involving a passage from this interview. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe and consider supporting on Patreon at patreon.com slash socialism for all. There's a link to Patreon in the video description. So this interview was granted by Stalin on March 1st to Roy Howard, the president of Scripps Howard Newspapers. This is, of course, in the years leading up to World War II, when Europe saw the rise of fascism. And so those are some of the topics that are discussed. The source is Stalin Collected Works, Volume 14, published by Red Star Press Limited, London, 1978, HTML transcription and markup by Solil Sen for Marxists Internet Archive, 2008. Thanks as usual to MIA at Marxists.org for hosting this and thousands of other free Marxist texts. Let's begin. Howard, what, in your opinion, would be the consequences of the recent events in Japan for the situation in the Far East? Stalin, so far it's difficult to say, too little material is available to do so. The picture is not sufficiently clear. Howard, what will be the Soviet attitude should Japan launch the long-predicted military drive against Outer Mongolia? Stalin, if Japan should venture to attack the Mongolian People's Republic and encroach upon its independence, we will have to help the Mongolian People's Republic. Stamanyakov, Litvinov's assistant, recently informed the Japanese ambassador in Moscow of this and pointed to the immutable friendly relations which the USSR has been maintaining with the Mongolian People's Republic since 1921. We will help the Mongolian People's Republic just as we helped it in 1921. Howard, would a Japanese attempt to seize Ulaanbaatar make positive action by the USSR a necessity? Stalin, yes. Howard, have recent events developed any new Japanese activities in this region, which are construed by the Soviets as of an aggressive nature? Stalin. The Japanese, I think, are continuing to concentrate troops on the frontiers of the Mongolian People's Republic, but no new attempts at frontier conflicts are so far observed. Howard. The Soviet Union appears to believe that Germany and Poland have aggressive designs toward the Soviet Union and are planning military cooperation. Poland, however, protested her unwillingness to permit any foreign troops using her territory as a basis for operations against a third nation. How does the Soviet Union envisage such aggression by Germany? From what position? In what direction would the German forces operate? Stalin. History shows that when any state intends to make war against another state, even not adjacent, it begins to seek for frontiers across which it can reach the frontiers of the state it wants to attack. Usually the aggressive state finds such frontiers. It either finds them with the aid of force, as was the case in 1914 when Germany invaded Belgium in order to strike at France, or it borrows such a frontier, as Germany, for example, did from Latvia in 1918 in her drive to Leningrad. I do not know precisely what frontiers Germany may adapt to her aims, but I think she will find people willing to lend her a frontier. Howard, seemingly the entire world today is predicting another great war. If war proves inevitable, when, Mr. Stalin, do you think it will come? Stalin, it is impossible to predict that. 
War may break out unexpectedly. Wars are not declared nowadays, they simply start. On the other hand, however, I think the positions of the Friends of Peace are becoming stronger. The Friends of Peace can work openly. They rely on the power of public opinion. They have at their command instruments like the League of Nations, for example. This is where the Friends of Peace have the advantage. Their strength lies in the fact that their activities against war are backed by the will of the broad masses of the people. There is not a people in the world that wants war. As for the enemies of peace, they are compelled to work secretly. That is where the enemies of peace are at a disadvantage. Incidentally, it is not precluded that precisely because of this, they may decide upon a military adventure as an act of desperation. One of the latest successes the Friends of Peace have achieved is the ratification of the Franco-Soviet Pact of Mutual Assistance by the French Chamber of Deputies. To a certain extent, this pact is an obstacle to the enemies of peace. Howard, should war come, Mr. Stalin, where is it most likely to break out? Where are the war clouds the most menacing, in the East or in the West? Stalin, in my opinion, there are two seats of war danger. The first is in the Far East in the zone of Japan. I have in mind the numerous statements made by Japanese military men containing threats against other powers. The second seat is in the zone of Germany. It's hard to say which is the most menacing, but both exist and are active. Compared with these two principal war seats of war danger, the Italian-Abyssinian War is an episode. At present, the far eastern seat of danger reveals the greatest activity. However, the center of this danger may shift to Europe. This is indicated, for example, by the interview which Herr Hitler recently gave to a French newspaper. In this interview, Hitler seems to have tried to say peaceful things, but he sprinkled his, quote, peacefulness so plentifully with threats against both France and the Soviet Union that nothing remained of his, quote, peacefulness. You see, even when Herr Hitler wants to speak of peace, he cannot avoid uttering threats. This is symptomatic. Howard, what situation or condition, in your opinion, furnishes the chief war menace today? Stalin, capitalism. Howard, in which specific manifestation of capitalism? Stalin, its imperialist, usurpatory manifestation. You remember how the First World War arose. It arose out of the desire to redivide the world. Today we have the same background. There are capitalist states which consider that they were cheated in the previous redistribution of spheres of influence, territories, sources of raw materials, markets, etc., and which would want another redivision that would be in their favor. Capitalism, in its imperialist phase, is a system which considers war to be a legitimate instrument for settling international disputes, a legal method in fact, if not in law. Howard May there not be an element of danger in the genuine fear existing in what you term capitalistic countries of an intent on the part of the Soviet Union to force its political theories on other nations. Stalin, there is no justification whatever for such fears. If you think that Soviet people want to change the face of surrounding states, and by forcible means at that, you are entirely mistaken. Of course, Soviet people would like to see the face of surrounding states changed, but that is the business of the surrounding states. I fail to see what danger the surrounding states can perceive in the ideas of the Soviet people if these states are really sitting firmly in the saddle. Howard, does this, your statement, mean that the Soviet Union has to any degree abandoned its plans and intentions for bringing about world revolution? Stalin, we never had such plans and intentions. Howard, you appreciate, no doubt, Mr. Stalin, that much of the world has long entertained a different impression. Stalin, 
This is the product of a misunderstanding. Howard, a tragic misunderstanding? Stalin, no, a comical one, or perhaps tragicomic. You see, we Marxists believe that a revolution will also take place in other countries, but it will take place only when the revolutionaries in those countries think it possible or necessary. The export of revolution is nonsense. Every country will make its own revolution if it wants to, and if it does not want to, there will be no revolution. For example, our country wanted to make a revolution and made it, and now we are building a new classless society. But to assert that we want to make a revolution in other countries, to interfere in their lives, means saying what is untrue and what we have never advocated. Howard, at the time of the establishment of diplomatic relations between the USSR and the USA, President Roosevelt and Litvinov exchanged identical notes concerning the question of propaganda. Paragraph 4 of Litvinov's letter to President Roosevelt said that the Soviet government undertakes, quote, not to permit the formation or residence on its territory of any organization or group and to prevent the activity on its territory of any organization or group or of representatives or officials of any organization or group which has as its aim the overthrow or preparation for the overthrow of or the bringing about by force of a change in the political or social order of the whole or any part of its territories or possessions, unquote. Why, Mr. Stalin, did Litvinov sign this letter if compliance with the terms of paragraph 4 is incompatible with the interests of the Soviet Union or beyond its control? Stalin, the fulfillment of the obligations contained in the paragraph you have quoted is within our control. We have fulfilled and will continue to fulfill these obligations. According to our Constitution, political emigrants have the right to reside on our territory. We provide them with the right of asylum just as the United States gives right of asylum to political emigrants. It is quite obvious that when Litvinov signed that letter, he assumed that the obligations contained in it were mutual. Do you think, Mr. Howard, that the fact that there are, on the territory of the USA, Russian white guard emigrants who are carrying on propaganda against the Soviets, and in favor of capitalism, who enjoy the material support of American citizens, and who in some cases respect groups of terrorists, is contrary to the terms of the Roosevelt-Litvinov Agreement? Evidently, these emigrants enjoy the right of asylum, which also exists in the United States. As far as we're concerned, we would never tolerate on our territory a single terrorist, no matter against whom his criminal designs were directed. Evidently, the right of asylum is given a wider interpretation in the USA than in our country, but we are not complaining. Perhaps you will say that we sympathize with the political emigrants who come onto our territory. But are there no American citizens who sympathize with the white guard emigrants, who carry on propaganda in favor of capitalism and against the Soviets? So what is the point? The point is not to assist these people, not to finance their activities. The point is that official persons in either country must refrain from interfering in the internal life of the other country. Our officials are honestly fulfilling this obligation. If any of them has failed in his duty, let us be informed about it. If we were to go too far and demand that all the White Guard emigrants be deported from the United States, that would be encroaching on the right of asylum proclaimed both in the USA and in the USSR. A reasonable limit to claims and counterclaims must be recognized. Litvinov signed his letter to President Roosevelt, not in a private capacity, but in the capacity of representative of a state, just as President Roosevelt did. Their agreement is an agreement between two states. In signing that agreement, both Litvinov and President Roosevelt, as representatives of two states, had in mind the activities of the agents of their states who must not and will not 
interfere in the internal affairs of the other side. The right of asylum proclaimed in both countries could not be affected by this agreement. The Roosevelt-Litvinov Agreement, as an agreement between the representatives of two states, should be interpreted within these limits. Howard. Did not Browder and Darcy, the American communists, appearing before the 7th Congress of the Communist International last summer, appeal for the overthrow by force of the American government? Stalin. I confess I do not remember the speeches of comrades Browder and Darcy. I do not even remember what they spoke about. Perhaps they did say something of the kind. But it was not Soviet people who formed the American Communist Party. It was formed by Americans. It exists in the USA, legally. It puts up its candidates at elections, including presidential elections. If comrades Browder and Darcy made speeches in Moscow once, they made hundreds of similar and certainly stronger speeches at home in the USA. The American communists are permitted to advocate their ideas freely, are they not? It would be quite wrong to hold the Soviet government responsible for the activities of American communists. Howard. But in this instance, is it not a fact that their activities took place on Soviet soil, contrary to the terms of paragraph 4 of the agreement between Roosevelt and Litvinov? Stalin. What are the activities of the Communist Party? In what way can they manifest themselves? Usually their activities consist in organizing the masses of the workers, in organizing meetings, demonstrations, strikes, etc. It goes without saying that the American communists cannot do all this on Soviet territory. We have no American workers in the USSR. Howard. I take it that the gist of your thought, then, is that an interpretation can be made which will safeguard and continue good relations between our countries? Stalin. Yes, absolutely. Howard. Admittedly, communism has not been achieved in Russia. State socialism has been built. Have not fascism in Italy and national socialism in Germany claimed that they have attained similar results? Have not both been achieved at the price of privation and personal liberty, sacrificed for the good of the state? Stalin. The term state socialism is inexact. Many people take this term to mean the system under which a certain part of wealth, sometimes a fairly considerable part, passes into the hands of the state or under its control, while in the overwhelming majority of cases, the works, factories, and the land remain the property of private persons. This is what many people take state socialism to mean. Sometimes this term covers a system under which the capitalist state, in order to prepare for or wage war, runs a certain number of private enterprises at its own expense. The society which we have built cannot possibly be called state socialism. Our Soviet society is socialist society because the private ownership of the factories, works, the land, the banks, and the transport system has been abolished and public ownership put in its place. The social organization which we have created may be called a Soviet socialist organization, not entirely completed, but fundamentally a socialist organization of society. The foundation of this society is public property, state, i.e. national, and also cooperative collective farm property. Neither Italian fascism nor German national, quote, socialism has anything in common with such a society. Primarily, this is because the private ownership of the factories and works, of the land, the banks, transport, etc., has remained intact, and therefore capitalism remains in full force in Germany and in Italy. Yes, you are right, we have not yet built communist society. It's not so easy to build such a society. You are probably aware of the difference between socialist society and communist society. In socialist society, certain inequalities in property still exist, but in socialist society there is no longer unemployment, no exploitation, 
no oppression of nationalities. In socialist society, everyone is obliged to work, although they do not, in return for their labor, receive according to their requirements, but according to the quantity and quality of the work they have performed. That is why wages, and moreover, unequal, differentiated wages, still exist. Only when we have succeeded in creating a system under which, in return for their labor, people will receive from society, not according to the quantity and quality of the labor they perform, but according to their requirements, will it be possible to say that we have built communist society. So quick comment there. Note that passage because it's the subject of just, I want to say misunderstanding, but really just ignorance and not reading the thing that will come up later on in the discussion. Also, I want to note this distinction between how do you receive in society. In a wages system, you receive based on the work that you put in. And in a communist society, you just simply receive according to your needs. So this is from each according to their ability to each according to their need. That is the communist ideal that people who are in the process of constructing or building socialism are attempting to realize. At this point, they had not even been at it for 20 years, so they had not reached that point. So just to clarify that. Continuing, you say that in order to build our socialist society, we sacrificed personal liberty and suffered privation. Your question suggests that socialist society denies personal liberty. That is not true. Of course, in order to build something new, one must economize accumulate resources, reduce one's consumption for a time, and borrow from others. If one wants to build a house, one saves up money, cuts down consumption for a time, otherwise the house will never be built. How much more true is this when it's a matter of building a new human society? We had to cut down consumption somewhat for a time, collect the necessary resources, and exert great effort. This is exactly what we did, and we built a socialist society. But we did not build the society in order to restrict personal liberty, rather in order that the human individual may feel really free. We built it for the sake of real personal liberty, liberty without quotation marks. It is difficult for me to imagine what, quote, personal liberty is enjoyed by an unemployed person who goes about hungry and can't find employment. Real liberty can exist only where exploitation has been abolished, where there is no oppression of some by others, when there is no unemployment and poverty, where a person is not haunted by the fear of being tomorrow deprived of work, of home, and of bread. Only in such a society is real, and not just on paper, personal and every other liberty possible. Howard, do you view as compatible the coincidental development of American democracy in the Soviet system? Stalin, American democracy and the Soviet system may peacefully exist side by side and compete with each other, but one cannot evolve into the other. The Soviet system will not evolve into American democracy or vice versa. We can peacefully exist side by side if we do not find fault with each other over every trifling matter. Howard, a new constitution is being elaborated in the USSR providing for a new system of elections. To what degree can this new system alter the situation in the USSR, since, as formerly, only one party will come forward at elections? Stalin. We shall probably adopt our new constitution at the end of this year. The commission appointed to draw up the constitution is working and should finish its labors soon. As has been announced already, according to the new constitution, the suffrage will be universal, equal, direct, and secret. You are puzzled by the fact that only one party will come forward at elections. 
you cannot see how election contests can take place under these conditions. Evidently, candidates will be put forward not only by the Communist Party, but by all sorts of public, non-party organizations. And we have hundreds of these. We have no contending parties any more than we have a capitalist class contending against a working class, which is exploited by those capitalists. Our society consists exclusively of free toilers of town and country, workers, peasants, intellectuals. Each of these strata may have its special interests and express them by means of the numerous public organizations that exist. But since there are no classes, since the dividing lines between classes have been obliterated, since only a slight but not a fundamental difference between various strata in socialist society has remained, there can be no soil for the creation of contending parties. Where there are not several classes, there cannot be several parties, for a party is part of a class. Under national, quote, socialism, i.e. Nazism, there is only one party, but nothing will come of this fascist one-party system. The point is that in Germany, capitalism and classes have remained, the class struggle has remained, and will force itself to the surface in spite of everything, even in the struggle between parties which represent antagonistic classes, just as it did in Spain, for example. In Italy, there is also only one party, the fascist party, but nothing will come of it there for the same reasons. Why will our suffrage be universal? Because all citizens, except those deprived of the franchise by the courts, will have the right to elect and be elected. Why will our suffrage be equal? because neither differences in property, which still exist to some extent, nor racial nor national affiliation will entail either privilege or disability. Women will enjoy the same rights to elect and be elected as men. Our suffrage will really be equal. Why secret? Because we want to give Soviet people complete freedom to vote for those they want to elect, for those whom they trust to safeguard their interests. Why direct? because direct elections to all representative institutions, right up to the supreme bodies, will best of all safeguard the interests of the toilers of our boundless country. You think that there will be no election contests, but there will be, and I foresee very lively election campaigns. There are not a few institutions in our country which work badly. Cases occur when this or that local government body fails to satisfy certain of the multifarious and growing requirements of the toilers of town and country. Have you built a good school or not? Have you improved housing conditions? Are you a bureaucrat? Have you helped to make our labor more effective and our lives more cultured? Such will be the criteria with which millions of electors will measure the fitness of candidates, reject the unsuitable, expunge their names from candidates' list, and promote and nominate the best. Yes, election campaigns will be very lively. They will be conducted around numerous, very acute problems principally of a practical nature, of first-class importance for the people. Our new electoral system will tighten up all institutions and organizations and compel them to improve their work. Universal, direct, and secret suffrage in the USSR will be a whip in the hands of the population against the organs of government which work badly. In my opinion, our new Soviet constitution will be the most democratic constitution in the world. Published in Pravda, 5th of March, 1936. So that's the end of the audiobook. I mentioned that there was a current events tie-in. Indeed there was. So let's start with this character, somebody named Nathan J. Robinson, who runs an ostensibly socialist magazine called Current Affairs, and, as one commenter put it, has a penchant for dressing like a C-tier Batman villain. I'm thinking ventriloquist. Anyway, this magazine, quote, socialist magazine, 
made headlines uh, not that long ago in places as sort of prominent as Newsweek and Vice. Why? Because the employees organized and they were proposing to turn the thing into a co-op and he fired them. Very socialist. And again, you know, if you dig into this a little bit deeper, this is the kind of ad that they run. This was actually run in the article that we're about to read. Goes well with a beignet. When you're loafing in a street cafe, sipping your cafe au lait and nibbling a French donut, the only company you need is current affairs. I'm sorry, but that's not actually that relatable to most people. But this, this is how they see themselves, present themselves, and I guess see their readership as well, which I, I just don't know who that appeals to. Well, aside from Nathan J. Robinson. But anyway, Current Affairs published this article which was announced on Twitter with this tweet, I know everybody has been waiting a long time for the current affairs takedown of Stalin. You know, to which I think we all said, finally, someone had the courage to attack Stalin. Thought the day would never come. Well, wait no longer. And so there's the article, Stalin will never be redeemable. And number, I mean, the ratio on this was huge. You can see it uh, starting there in the, uh, the bottom of the graphic. As one person said, the only thing anyone has waited for from current affairs is a union contract. Someone else said, pretty sure we're not only not waiting for you to do this, we told you not to do it. But anyway, uh, funny stuff in there. Then we reach part two, which is where another liberal read this article and got a gigantic ratio for posting about her absolutely tortured understanding, not only of a quote from Stalin, but seemingly socialism itself. Now, this person has been employed at a number of podcasts currently, the Everybody Loves Communism podcast. Not really sure, based on what we're seeing here, how that exactly came about. But anyway, used to work for Sam Cedar, and you know, my guess is the liberalism just never really left this person. What follows really is truly embarrassing. So this is how it started. Whatever else you think of Stalin, this is a weird thing for an ostensible communist to say. I will take the bread, but leave the wage labor, thanks. And then there is the quote, which is actually featured in that article by Nathan J. Robinson. And it's from Stalin, the thing that we just read. Quote, it is difficult for me to imagine what, quote, personal liberty is enjoyed by an unemployed person who goes about hungry and cannot find employment. Now, obviously, Stalin is talking there about capitalism because in the United States, for example, everything's, you know, liberty this, liberty that. But, okay, you have freedom of speech. If you're unemployed and, you know, in today's circumstances, maybe even unhoused, um, you know, that freedom of speech, no one is listening to you and it's not going to do you that much good, really. So anyway, that's kind of the thing here. If you don't have economic security at least a certain baseline, then... Um, you know, what good are those liberties? Those liberties really are creatures of the capitalist class who have all the economic security because they're exploiting the working class. Anyway, real liberty can exist only where exploitation has been abolished, where there is no oppression of some by others, where there is no unemployment and poverty, where a man is not haunted by the fear of being tomorrow deprived of work, of home, and of bread. Only in such a society is real and not paper personal, and every other liberty possible. So she was taking issue with this. It's a weird thing for an ostensible communist to say. 
did you understand anything that was being said here? Um, and this person has theory in their name, which clearly is just a pun off of another phrase, but poor choice of words. So again, as hundreds of people turned out to tell her eventually in the comments, that is Stalin criticizing capitalism's hypocrisy. You're saying that you're granting liberty to people, but as Lenin said in The State and Revolution, freedom in capitalist society is about the same as it was in the Greek slave-owning states. It's freedom for slave owners. That's what it is. It's freedom for the ruling class. But everyone else is, you know, wage slaves and, and so on. And so you don't have those real liberties. And as we read in the piece before, Stalin was contrasting this with the socialism that they were building in the USSR in 1936, when this is from. And uh, as he said, we still have wage work because we're in the process of constructing this. But even within that, we've already um, set it up so that people have an employment guarantee so that we're not in socialism yet because it has not been fully built. But people at least have that economic security that they're not haunted by, you know, being deprived of work, of home and of bread, as is the case in the capitalist countries or was the case in the capitalist countries at that time. So going back to the text and reading a slightly longer passage, which again, Stalin is contrasting what was happening in the USSR with what was happening in the capitalist countries and specifically what was going on in fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. So, quote, yes, you are right. We, the USSR, have not yet built communist society. It's not so easy to build such a society. And again, remember, their revolution was in 1917, and then there was five years of civil war, etc. So, I mean, in 1936, you're talking about under 20 years. So really closer to 15 even. So that's where they were at. Anyway, continuing. You are probably aware of the difference between socialist society and I will add the lower stage, and communist society, the upper stage. Although Lenin also did refer to lower communism and full communism or whatever, but anyway, the idea that they had just begun and were in the lower stage, whatever you want to call that. In socialist society, which again they were in, certain inequalities and in property still exist, but in socialist society there's no longer unemployment, no exploitation, no oppression of nationalities. In socialist society, everyone is obliged to work, although he does not, in return for his labor, receive according to his requirements, but according to the quantity and quality of the work he has performed. That is why wages, and moreover unequal differentiated wages, still exist. Only when we have succeeded in creating a system under which, in return for their labor, people will receive from society not according to the quantity and quality of the labor they perform, but according to their requirements. Will it be possible to say that we have built communist society? So this idea of uh, going to this post again, I will take the bread but leave the wage labor. Well, you can leave the wage labor when society has built full socialism, and that had not happened in 1936. What is hard to understand here? Or are you just posting without thinking or reading? Now, people misunderstand things sometimes. That is normal. I misunderstand things sometimes. But when you misunderstand something, the thing that you're supposed to do is go, oops, I misunderstood, and then correct yourself, okay? And then the world moves on, and it doesn't turn into you doubling down on this big, embarrassing like piece of nonsense. 
Anyway, she continued, weird that the author let this go by unremarked in what is supposed to be a socialist critique of Stalin. Well, okay, actually, no, you're not understanding it. For all of his faults, Nathan J. Robinson actually understood that quote better because he referred to it as, you know, it's a beautiful concept. And then he goes on to say, but like Stalin didn't do this and that right or whatever. But anyway, she then continues with some anarchist bullshit, universal no job guarantee, please. Yeah, so if you want to go into something from 1936 USSR, you know, again, how, because you're in the early stages of building socialism at that point, how useful are people like this going to be? Let's say that there was a revolutionary situation in the U.S., and then we were finally able to set about the task of building socialism and all of that stuff. How useful would a person like this be that basically has the anarchist thinking that the minute the revolution happens, we're done and just everybody stops working, everybody just plays video games 24-7, like whatever it is they're thinking... No, we actually have to set up the system. And yeah, under socialism, especially under communism, things will be more efficient. People will be able to work less because we're not just, you know, working to buy some capitalist a second yacht or another island or whatever it is. We can actually just work the amount that's required for production. And although, you know, if this were to happen in an advanced country today, there would be a lot of work. I I think, um, as far as, you know, undoing U.S. policy in other countries and helping underdeveloped countries or overexploited countries to, you know, I mean, there'd be restitution made in the form of probably massive amounts of assistance, which wouldn't just be financial. It would also be, um, you know, sending people uh, to help actually to repair all the damage that's been done, you know, whatever it would be. I, I don't know exactly what it would be. But the point is there would be a lot of work. Okay, that that's the point. <laughs> there would be a lot of work if there was a revolution happening in, you know, modern UK or USA or Canada or France or Germany or Italy, whatever. There would be an enormous amount of constructive work that could be done and just not, oh, universal no job guarantee. That is an enormously selfish and lazy point of view that is not going to help anybody in a revolutionary situation. So Lenin had a piece called A Great Beginning, which was about the communist Sabotniks days of basically volunteer labor where people were going around in, uh, you know, very early revolutionary Russia right after World War I and all of that to try to reconstruct things so that they wouldn't get taken over again by the capitalists. And of course, there was a long war waged um, against socialism. So yeah, these things need to be defended. You need organization. You need, especially in a more backward country like Russia was at that time, you need to industrialize quickly. And that doesn't just drop out of the sky. People have to work for it. So anyway, people dropped in on this thread and were, I, I was actually really heartened by the replies because there was a lot of people who got it replying. I mean, some comments were just sort of, you know, insults and whatever, some of which were funny, but a lot of people were dropping in and explaining to her, like, why this was wrong. For example, on the screen there, it doesn't say wage labor, it just says work. She replied, linking unemployment and poverty is a pretty clear indication he's talking about wage labor. I dropped in and I said, yeah, because he's criticizing capitalism. Like, have you even read this thing? And she kept posting about it throughout the day, even when many people were dropping in and trying to explain this. 
So this is, you know, some of what's going on still in the self-styled, you know, U.S. left. Um, I do think that the movement is getting stronger. I mean, for example, you know, we've documented the struggle against the um, sort of Maupinite and infracell neo-fascists that are trying to call themselves Marxist and basically confuse the world about what it means. Um, and then this is another example of it. Although of a different character, this leans more in a sort of ultra-left or anarchist direction. So anyway, I posted about this. I just said, it happened again. And I referenced a sort of very famous um, exchange that got screenshotted a lot. So one person asks a uh, sort of large anarchist account, how would eyeglasses distribution work under anarchism? Would there be roving optometrists or would there hopefully be one per commune? Okay. So here's the answer. It's just this simple. Buckle up. I need glasses. Hey, I like making glasses and helping people who need them. Take these. Thanks. Wow, it's just that simple. You know, somebody replied to this. They're like, I work in optics. These people have no idea what they're talking about from, you know, lens crafting to testing to like, I mean, it just, it's a lot more complicated than this. So anyway, um, somebody asks the poster we were talking about before, who makes the bread? In other words, you know, you want the situation where just, okay, nobody works. What happens then? The reply, we'll work it out amongst ourselves, like housemates getting together and figuring out chores. Can I just say, if you were trying to convince anyone, you lost in the first sentence. Anyone who's ever had housemates. I mean, come on. Continuing, personally, I love cooking for people and would not need to be coerced. Okay, now let's apply this to railroads and open heart surgery. And so we're just going to have people vibing on stuff when they're in the mood to, you know, cook for hundreds of thousands, millions of people. They'll do it when they don't. I guess we don't eat. She then went on to explain that this would happen in small social units of like 200 people or something, which prompted a whole bunch of other questions. What about people whose jobs only make sense when you're doing them for more than 200 people? Who builds trains in this scenario? Things like that. Uh, this is anarchist brain stuff. You know, in the end, when you systematize this stuff, it just turns out to be a job with extra steps. Cause, so can we just refer to it as work? Now, again, the basis on which people get paid and the distribution of resources, as you get closer to full communism, you get closer to the ideal of from each according to their ability to each according to need. And that's fine. Until you've built that system, you're not there. So anyway, it's just sort of a moot point or hypothetical. And again, ultra left, you're just speaking about something that is not materially possible at that particular time. And if it's not possible, then you can work towards it, but you can't just act as though it's a possibility. It isn't. Anyway, back to the sort of anarchist brain stuff of, you know, we'll, we'll just figure it out like housemates. Here are a few more examples. So uh, this is, again, questioning an anarchist. This is literally how all specialization works. How would you produce medicine? This was the completely straight-faced answer. Make a few friends with a chemistry degree. Okay. Where did they get said chemistry degree? Are there schools in this scenario? Like, are the schools just a few friends that had education degrees, or how did that work? Anyway, leaving that alone for a moment, let's assume that 
a chemistry degree is a thing that you can just get. Then, step two, buy some lab equipment from one of thousands of lab equipment suppliers, which again is just people who like vibe on making lab equipment. And that's totally a sustainable, doable system because they feel like doing it every single day. Step three, learn chemistry or pick up, well, I guess this would be instead of making a few friends or I don't know, learn chemistry or pick up a medicine book from a local library. If those still exist, and again, if people who have medical knowledge, um, you know, then sit down and do all of the work that it takes to produce a, quote, medicine book. Then I guess also another possibility is talk to rural doctors and healers who are already doing this now out of necessity. Uh, okay. I mean, there is a place certainly for people to use various natural things uh, as health supplements. That's entirely fine, but it's not always going to produce all the results that we could do by also adding in you know, synthetic medicines and, and things like that. So this is, all of these basically point towards um, basically a de-evolution to really, really inefficient production. That's the exact opposite of what Marxists are looking for. You know, the advantages of capitalism for all of its many flaws, you know, exploitation and war and all of the things that it does, um, the, there are some ways that it reshapes society, which lay the groundwork for socialism, like, well, proletarianizing the population, but also socializing production and um, expanding the impact of technology across society and various other things. Um, things are getting more efficient. Socialism, however, has to complete that process by taking production out of the capitalist's hands and not running it on a uh, you know private-for-profit basis. Anarchists, this is going back to sort of, um, you know, 1800s petty bourgeois, really inefficient production. And, uh, you know, just hoping that there's a whole supply chain out there, basically. Held in place, I guess, by magic or, you know, quote, voluntary association. There's really no thought put into this whatsoever. Baby-brained stuff. On the other hand, Marxists are people who have actually thought through all these questions and said, well, what would actually be necessary to do all of this stuff in a non-capitalist, you know, post-capitalist socialist environment. And then, you know, as anarchists start to think through this stuff, then you start reinventing Marxism. And then hopefully at some point you just go, I should just go read Marx. That's what I did.